listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, doctor. Guys, you give Mark Kirkendall a hand. He got his degree, defended his thesis. There was much rejoicing in his family and in his household. There's no more studying to be had, no more paper writing. Oh my gosh, congratulations, Mark. That's tremendous. Really excited for you and for your family. Um, again, thanks for letting me come. And uh, it's, really, it's been really fun to be with you guys these past several weeks. And uh, fear not, Mark will be back up here again soon, so you guys don't have to worry about uh, uh, entertaining me any longer. But I, I really have enjoyed uh, getting to know uh, the church here at White House. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to conclude our three-week look at the topic of fear and faith. And over the past two weeks, we've looked at scriptures that have linked the concepts of fear and faith together like two sides of the same coin. We can't really separate the two. We've learned what fear is and that ultimately that fear is um, what we worship. And therefore, will whatever we worship will run our lives. In the first week, we looked at Mark chapter 4 and Jesus' calming of the storm. And that story showed us that fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, in fact, God means for us to be fearful. It's when we fear things other than him that our faith begins to fail. And that's what we looked at last week in Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. We saw that when God is not the object of our fear, our faith is easily misplaced. And it's, we misplace it in something that's not God, and we said that last week that that's called idolatry. Misplaced fear ultimately derails our faith, it derails our worship, and it derails our lives. This morning, and to conclude this three-week series... I would like to talk about what happens when our fear and faith are rightly oriented in God. And I think the answer to that is peace. The New Testament describes Christians as those who are at peace, those who are anxious for nothing. But if you're anything like me, I don't expect that you experience peace as often as you would like, or as often as I like, or as I should. So I'd like to remind us what the scriptures say again to encourage us when we experience fear and then offer a few suggestions on how we can keep our fear and our faith solely on the Lord Jesus, regardless of whatever we may be experiencing. Now, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 6 um, that I'd like to look at this morning. I hope you're familiar with it. So if you go ahead and turn there to Matthew chapter 6, uh, we'll begin in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, and what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? And look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, 
how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These are the words of God. This is one of the more well-known passages from Jesus' most famous sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5 and lasts all the way through Matthew chapter 7, and this particular passage falls right in the middle. What's the sermon about? The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like, especially in contrast to the kingdom of this world. Jesus also describes in this sermon what life is like as a citizen of God's kingdom, the way life should be and the way life will be under his rule as he becomes Lord. Come to think of it, it's really not all that different from what we've been watching the past week and throughout the past several months as we look at these presidential candidates on our television screens and on our news reports. Each of them stand up in front of a crowd, cast a vision for the way life should be and what things will be like under their new administration. It's just that Jesus will actually do what he says. So Jesus begins his sermon by describing what is valuable in the kingdom, the Beatitudes, and then proceeds to correct a lot of misconceptions about what righteousness is and should look like. The Pharisees and the scribes and other Jewish leaders, along with the rest of the pagan world, had been, you know, campaigning, so to speak, on their own agenda of what they thought righteousness was, what it should be, and what it will be. So Jesus talks through topics like anger, murder, adultery, vows, injustice, philanthropy, fasting, prayer, money, false teachers, and of course, our topic of fear. He redefines in this sermon and clarifies what those things ought to look like in the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of the world. The biggest difference, of course, is that Jesus isn't campaigning for office with this sermon. He wasn't trying to curry votes or persuade people that his opinions were best. He was proclaiming truth, reality, and the the inevitability of the coming of the kingdom of God, as well as its availability to anyone who wanted access. It wasn't a matter of opinion. It wasn't a matter of popular vote. Jesus was making known life. And he was making known life the way God intended for it to be lived. And only those who hear his words and put them into practice are the ones that can count themselves as citizens of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. 
So by the time we get to chapter 6, Jesus lists out several behaviors that hypocrites and Gentiles do that should not be characteristic of those who enjoy citizenship in the kingdom of God. So when we get to the end of this list, we come to verse 25, and Jesus says, therefore, meaning to tell us that whatever comes next is a conclusive remark on everything that has preceded it. And his conclusion, do not worry. In fact, he repeats this command, this imperative, three times in this section and emphasizes that worry or anxiety or fear is not something that is characteristic of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. You see, anxiety is the currency of Gentiles, hypocrites, and control freaks. It is the primary reason why they cannot enjoy life the way God intended for it to be lived, because they can't find peace. They're trying to control their circumstances with their behavior, and when they realize that they can't, they search desperately for another Savior, just like we talked about last week. And they end up being constantly disappointed. The world handles anxiety with this vicious cycle. You know, you have anxiety, then some sort of coping mechanism. You get some temporary relief, but then you get disappointed again. And so that makes you more anxious and you have a coping mechanism and you get some temporary relief and then you get disappointed again and on and on and on it goes. All the world has been able to do is numb their anxiety. They have yet to find a cure. So when Jesus concludes everything leading up to verse 25 by saying, therefore, do not be anxious, he is campaigning, so to speak, with the people and telling them, life doesn't have to be that way. There's an alternative. In the kingdom of God, there is peace even when there is trouble. In the kingdom of God, there can be peace even when there's trouble. There can be joy even when there is pain. There can be hope even in the midst of sorrow. And that peace that Jesus describes that that is available to those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, that peace is possible not because anyone deserves it, not because it can be earned, and certainly not because there's no trouble in life or that we're lying to ourselves and pretending things didn't happen. We experience peace simply because we believe that God will take care of us. That's it. Now, I know that sounds too simple for a problem as big as anxiety is, especially in our culture today. But I want you to look. I want you to look at this and look how Jesus makes this beautifully convincing argument about not just anxiety, but everything that comes with it. He begins with his main point. He says, do not be anxious about your life. And the word anxious here can be translated as anxious, concerned, care, worry. It's a type of fear. He repeats the point three times in this section 
but he doesn't repeat it as if he's giving advice. He's not labeling it as um, a, a help mechanism. He's levying it as an imperative, a command. In fact, the reasons that he gives that follow, there aren't just reasons that should convince us to obey. They're also reasons to show us how absurd not obeying would be. He proves his point in the next line. He proves his point by beginning with this rhetorical question. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We might say it this way. If God has done all of this, created this whole world and everything in it, just so that you can have life, why would he not also give you what you need to live within what he's given? Or another way of saying it is, if God has taken care of the greater, will he not also take care of the lesser? And the, the answer to the rhetorical question is yes. He substantiates his point with two illustrations that we're very familiar with. And they all kind of reflect and revolve around the same idea. And it's this idea. Look how well God has taken care of the lesser. And if God has taken such great care of the lesser, how much more should we expect him to take care of the greater? So first he begins by mentioning the birds of the air in verses 26 and 27. Now he's not suggesting that we shouldn't work at all or that God's just going to provide food for us out of nowhere. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we shouldn't worry about where the food will come from. And that birds are a perfect illustration. Birds work all day to get the food that they need for that day. They never store up food just in case. They live from paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, each and every day of their lives. And you know what? I can never recall seeing a sparrow sitting there on a telephone wire going, ah! Oh no. What if I don't get food? I've never seen a sparrow have an anxiety attack and just <laughs> fall over dead. Have you? I don't see any, I don't see any sparrows on Prozac. I don't see any sparrows going, you know, wringing their hands at the bird bath going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I didn't get enough money. They're just living every day the same way they did before, looking for the daily bread that God has provided for them. So if sparrows, the lesser, they don't worry about the basics of life, why should we as humans, the greater, worry that God won't provide for us in an even greater way? Beautiful, beautiful argument. The illustration of the birds of the air demonstrate this point. They demonstrate that God can. God can provide for everything in his creation, even down to the smallest and most insignificant creatures. He orchestrates everything in the world, not just so that you can live, but so even the smallest bird has what it needs for life every day. It's a demonstration of God's power, a demonstration of God's providence. 
to provide everything that is necessary for life the way he intended it to be lived. And if he is able to provide for the lesser, how much more capable is God to be able to provide for the greater? So the example of the birds demonstrates that God can. The second illustration about the flowers of the field, and that's in verses 28 and 29, it illustrates the same logical point that if God has cared for the lesser, why would he also not care for the greater? But clothing is different than food. Okay? Clothing is necessary, but clothing doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be ornate. God could have just created one type of flower in one color, but instead he's created thousands of flowers in thousands of colors and shapes and sizes. So if God's objective was to merely clothe, then why does he make the clothes so elaborate, especially for something that will so quickly be thrown in the fire? Answer, ornate, handcrafted design always communicates time, always communicates value, and it always communicates love, care. That's why we're not all wearing burlap sacks this morning. If God has so elaborately clothed flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more does he care to clothe us? I used to make a joke with my wife about never bringing her flowers. Because, babe, it's like, I feel like it's a death threat. You know, I'm bringing these flowers, and then it's like a couple days later, they're, they're dead. I mean, I should bring you like a rock or, you know, like something that will last as a symbol of my affliction, affection for you. Um, she didn't really like that. Um, she's like, no, you can, st- you can still bring me the flowers. I, I get it. Flowers are precious even though they're temporary because they illustrate for us something, that there's beauty even in the simplicity of God's creation. When you look at the complexity of humanity, why would God work so hard to be so intricate with things that last so very little and not have the same kind of care for us, the pinnacle of his creation. So the flowers illustration goes a little bit further than the first one did. The birds of the air demonstrate that God can provide, but the example of the flowers suggests not just that he can, but that he cares. You see, many of us rarely, if ever, doubt that God can. Can God provide for our, fam- our family financially? Sure, no problem. But where our faith gets shaky is when we start asking ourselves whether or not God cares to. Well, I'm a nobody. Or I haven't been reading my Bible very much, or I'm not leading my family, or I've looked at this, or I've done that. He doesn't care about me. We really don't doubt God's capability. 
We oftentimes doubt, though, whether or not he cares. These two illustrations of the birds and the flowers combine to argue that God can feed the birds of the air and that he cares enough to ornately clothe the flowers of the field. If God can and God cares enough to do that for the lesser things in his creation like birds and flowers, how much more can and should we believe that God can and God cares to provide for us? It would be absurd to believe otherwise. Isn't that a beautiful argument? It's pretty convincing, too. It's a great definition of faith for us. I have a friend, his name is Chris Sherrod, and and I'm completely stealing this from him. But especially when we encounter anxiety, faith is believing that God can that God cares. That's it. It's not complicated. Faith is believing that God can and God cares. In fact, that's kind of the basic conclusion he reaches when we get here to verse 30. But if God God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And there it is, the connection we've been looking at the past three weeks. Fear and faith. Always two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them. It's simple here. The presence of anxiety in our lives reveals an absence of belief that God can and God cares. When you have anxiety, it shows you something about what you believe. If we did believe that he can, if we did believe that he cared, why would we worry? Anxiety in our hearts is an indication that we believe that we're on our own, that no one cares, that no one can. And of course, that just engenders even more fear and more anxiety. And as we learned last week, that will lead us to misplacing our faith, which leads to misplacing our worship, which leads to misplacing our lives and wrecking them completely. We're all trying to cope with our fears, our anxieties, our neuroses, everything. But those who believe in God, only those who believe in God, are able to find a peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you remember last week we described fear? We said that fear is the emotional response to situations that we don't think we can control that will do us harm. That's what fear is. Anxiety is the same way. It's almost the same definition. It's the emotional response we have when we try to control the uncontrollable. The Gentiles and the hypocrites that Jesus has been describing try to control their circumstances and their gods by all sorts of pious and manipulative behavior. Why? Why would I try to control a God? Why would I try to feel like I need to take matters into my own hands? Simple. They are not positive that their God can. Or they're not positive that their God cares. Or they're not positive of both. That he can or that he cares. 
to act in their favor or at all. I have a friend who says that anxiety is the gap between what we expect things to be like and the way things are. And the wider the gap, the greater the anxiety. And the the greater the anxiety, the harder and more desperately we will search for a Savior from it, disbelieving that God can or that God cares to do so himself. So we start to pick up these other idols that don't really solve the problem. They just numb the fear. And that's as good as it gets for us. When we don't take God at his word, there is no cure for anxiety. There are only distractions, delusions, and drugs. A bag of tricks that help us sleep at night. The bottom line here is that full-blown anxiety is practical atheism. Our unwillingness to believe that God can and God cares causes us to behave as if God doesn't exist at all. Or if he does, we need to convince him or bribe him or show off to him to get him to pay attention to us, to help us, because otherwise he would be unwilling to do so or that we would go unnoticed. That may be the way that the Gentiles live. That may be the way the hypocrites live. That may be the way the control freaks live, but it should not be the way citizens of the kingdom of God live. So Jesus repeats the command a second time after he's made these two arguments of the birds and the flowers, and he presents the people with a new alternative. He says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles Seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The most effective way I've I've heard this part of the sermon explained is by actually using the story of the prodigal sons. You remember the story? The younger brother wants his share of the father's inheritance before the father dies. The father is gracious to give his to his sons because he can and he cares. Right? Okay. And the younger son goes off, he squanders everything in reckless living, and then he comes to his senses, repents of what he's done, and returns to his father, who of course is overjoyed to see him, and he throws a party to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother, who has been dutifully staying behind, working hard every day, doing everything he was supposed to do, is enraged by the fact that his dad allowed that brother to return, and he's even thrown a party for him. And the older brother goes to his father and he says, you haven't even given me so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. And the father's response is what helps us understand verse 33. It's amazing. The father looks at the older brother and he says, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. See, the older brother was so dutiful, 
and working so hard for something he already had. He was trying to earn what was already his. His father didn't give him a goat, didn't give him a goat because the goat was already his. It already belonged to him. Not because he hadn't squandered his inheritance or worked so hard, but because he was the father's son. Faith works the same way. Many of us are control freaks. And we work desperately every day trying so hard to achieve what God has already given us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the problem is, when we don't believe God can, and we don't believe that God cares, we begin to act like the older brother, like the Gentiles and the hypocrites. And we try to use God for what he has, that what we want, instead of trusting him to provide what we need, as he promised. So Jesus concludes by repeating the command a third time. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When we believe that God can and God cares, even in the midst of injustice, pain, hatred, loss, and especially trouble, we don't have to be overwhelmed with anxiety. We can actually experience peace. It is possible. And that peace is possible not because anyone deserves it, not because it can be earned, and certainly not because there isn't any trouble or pain in life. We experience peace simply because we believe that God can and that God cares. That's it. That's the kingdom of God that Jesus has come and is coming to inaugurate and to make available as the Prince of Peace. So given this beautiful argument, I think that there are two principles that will help us remember these truths next time anxiety comes knocking at our door. I'd like to conclude with these two principles. Number one, faith in Jesus is never blind, but it isn't always visible. Number two, peace is a reality to be enjoyed, not a feeling to be fabricated. So let's talk about each of these for a moment. Number one, faith in Jesus is never blind, but it is always visible. Lots of people have a hard time with texts like these because they think it means that their faith has to be this blind faith. But a Christian's faith, especially, especially in the face of fear, is never blind. I mean, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6 to the people when he's talking to them about what to do when they're afraid. What does he tell them to do? He tells them to consider, to think, to remember what God has done. He does exactly what the prophets, the poets, the leaders of the nation of Israel have done all throughout the Hebrew Bible. They're always reminding the nation of what God did, how mighty he was on their behalf, and that if he has done great things for them in the past, why would he also not do great things for them in the future? They have a reason to have faith. Our faith that God can and God cares is not baseless. It's not blind. 
The most obvious proof of that is that God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be the atonement for our sins. And he did that while we were yet his enemies. If God was willing to give us the greater in his son Jesus, while we were the lesser, why would we think that he would not also take care of the lesser now that he has made us greater? Our faith has reason to be confident that God can and God cares even when what we see and when what we feel gives us reason to not think that way. That's, that's the key this morning. That's the conclusion. I want you guys to always be thinking about this. Will we trust in what God says over what we see? Will we trust in what God has said over what we feel? If we say yes, if we say yes, especially in the midst of a situation that looks like God can't, especially in a situation that looks like God doesn't care, the world will look at us and they'll say, that's blind faith. Doesn't look like your God's going to help you out. You fool. That's just blind faith. We know better. Our faith isn't blind. We just don't need sight when we're believing God's promise. We don't need sight when we're believing God's promise. It's like an airline pilot who has to land a plane in a thick fog who only has his instruments to go by. He can only use his instruments to find the runway. Would you call him blind? We're just like that pilot. We know how to walk by faith and not by sight, but it doesn't mean that we're blind. Number two, peace is a reality to be enjoyed, not a feeling that we need to fabricate. It's precisely because our faith isn't blind that we can enjoy a peace that's not fabricated. The Gentiles, the hypocrites, and the control freaks may always find ways to fabricate their peace, but it never lasts. They always find themselves riddled with anxiety over and over again. Permanent peace is not something that humans know how to achieve. It's not something that humans know how to create. And it's certainly something that humans don't know how to maintain. Because we're not the creator. But when we believe that the Creator can, and that the Creator cares, then we can experience the same kind of peace that Paul describes in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord, always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. 
let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. That would be absurd. Why? Because you can bring your requests to the creator of all things. And he can. And he cares. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's teaching Matthew 6. A couple things here. First of all, allow me to get a little preachy at you here. Um, As if I haven't been already. Um, Anyway, um, the peace that Paul describes here is not, is not, is not some mystic barometer for discerning God's will. Oh, I, I, I really have a peace about what God's calling me to do here. That is not what this verse says. That's not what this verse is instructing. That's actually the way of the Gentiles, the hypocrites, and the control freaks who are living by their feelings instead of by their faith. They're feelers, not believers. Don't do that. Instead, Paul is saying that the peace of God is this, it's like this pre-existing reality. It exists before we were ever afraid. It exists before we were ever created. And it calms our hearts when we're faced with anxiety. It does not guide our hearts. You know? It doesn't say, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a verse about decision making. This is a verse about anxiety and your heart and what your heart will do if it's overcome with anxiety and misplaces its faith. This peace of God guards our hearts. And what do our hearts need to be guided from? Guarded from? Anxiety. When we believe that God can and God cares, that He provides for us, that He loves us, we are reminded of the reality of this peace that already belongs to us because we are His children, just like the older brother. And all we need to do is walk into it. Just the way you walked into the sanctuary this morning. And you're there and you're like, oh yeah, it's better to be here than what I was doing instead. It calms our hearts. It allows us to then make kingdom-minded decisions instead of fear-based ones, instead of feeling-based ones. What is the peace of God? It is the warmth of knowing that since God has done the greater thing of giving us his son Jesus, that he will also take care of the lesser things, that they will be added to us as well. When we believe that God can and that God cares, it gives us the perspective we need. It helps us to see what we need in life to be able to live peacefully in God's provision, whatever his provision may be. 
When I teach my Ford students, I often talk to them about this. Like if you were walking along the streets of Hollywood and you saw your favorite movie star that you ever saw and you were looking and wondering and you saw like he's, he's carrying a bag of groceries and this big old loaf of bread sticking out from the side. I say, how would you go up and ask, you know, I don't know, Tom Hanks for a loaf of bread? He doesn't know you. You don't know him. You'd probably walk up and try to get his attention. You'd probably walk up and try to convince him that you're his biggest fan. You'd probably walk up and, and try to sweet talk him, make sure that he liked you, maybe even say how pitiful your situation is and how he really needs to give you that loaf of bread. And then I say, let's change Tom Hanks out of there. How would you ask your father for a loaf of bread if he was walking along down the side of the road and you were hungry and you needed something to eat? Now, I know not all of us have had decent fathers in our lives, but good fathers walk into his arms and his embrace, you, even the sight of him, this peace just comes out of nowhere. You wanted bread, but you got bread and you got peace. And you enjoy that peace. Not because you did anything. Not because you made yourself known. Not because you're so lovable. But because he loves you. Because he cares for you. And because he can provide for you. Peace is knowing your father cares and provides for you. It sets you free to walk into any circumstance and know that you are loved and protected. It, that's why we can rejoice in him always. And again, we can say rejoice not because our lives are perfect, not because there's no trouble, not because there's no pain, but because we believe that he cares for us because we belong to him. We can ask him for anything we need and trust that he knows what is best for us and will give it to us at just the right time. We don't have to get his attention. We don't have to bribe him. We don't have to convince him that we're worthy of him answering our prayers. We can simply walk through life in perfect peace because we believe that he is who he claims to be and that he will do as he promised to do. So to conclude, when our fear and our faith is rightly oriented in God, in our creator, rather than anything else in his creation, we will trust that his way is better than our way. And as Tim Keller has said, Abraham didn't want to give up Isaac. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. But God's will is wise and right and good. And the people who submit to God's will. We'll spend the next billion years thanking Him that He had it. 
and that he gave it to them. And I can't wait till I get to tell him that too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, forgive us for our practical atheism. We confess that there are many things in our lives that create anxiety. There have been a lot of reasons and opportunities that we have placed our faith in things that are creations, not the Creator. Forgive us, Father, for turning to things that can't save, especially when you have done so much to save. Father, remind us of all that you've done. Encourage our faith by helping us to remember that you can, that you are full of power and might, and that your providence has worked all things together for good to those who love you. And Father, remind us that you care. That while we were yet sinners, you loved us so much to give us your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And that if you've given us the best in your Son, you will give us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So Father, I pray that you would increase our faith by helping us to not walk by sight. And in so doing, Father, we would give you great glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.